to 47. John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralysed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more, to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son also gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 
I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I give, that I have, is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that only comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Uh, Friends, one of the reasons why uh, I love for us to spend time just sitting under God's word to hear and being read to us. Um, For many of us, we have busy weeks uh, and maybe we've struggled to even open God's word. Uh, And Sunday is one moment where you can pause and listen to what God is already saying to you. Because as you open and listen, he's probably already speaking to you now because his word is alive. Uh, Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning to ask that you would continue to exalt yourself. Lord Jesus, I ask that there will be such a sense of who you are that our hearts will continue to be drawn to worship you, whether we're saved or whether we're sceptical. Pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Um, this morning, there's a lot of ground to cover, to be honest, and we'll see how we go. Um, but my hope and prayer is this that you will walk away, and this may sound a bit like, well, we're at church and we're talking about Jesus, but my hope and prayer is that you walk away either knowing Jesus more and your heart will be stirred to worship him more, or if you're someone who's skeptical, even more further to discover who this Jesus is. So with that in mind, let me ask you a question. If I asked you to finish this sentence, Jesus is, 
dot, dot, dot. How would you finish that sentence? Now, obviously, you would finish that sentence in various ways, I'm sure. Uh, If you're someone who's thinking about who Jesus is personally, you might say it in a particular way, Jesus is X. Uh, You might be thinking as a church community, uh, Jesus is dot, dot, dot. Maybe you're someone who's like, I'm not really sure about this Jesus guy. I've got a few uh, opinions on who he is. And so you might say, Jesus is dot, dot, dot. What about culturally? The culture that we live in. When we ask our friends, our neighbors, and say, hey, who is Jesus? Jesus is? Uh, Once every month, I go to a, a, um, a barber. Uh, and this guy I've been going to, I've got to be honest with you, I would rather go somewhere else um, because it's expensive going there because of the hairstyle that he decides to give me. Uh, I've given him the choice to do it. Uh, so it's my own fault for this haircut, um, for letting him do what he does. But one of the reasons is because when I first went there, I just asked him, who is Jesus? As he was cutting my hair and he said, uh, he's a Kiwi, he's a, he's a Maori boy. And he said to me, bro, He's a good guy. He's just so kind. He's so awesome. Now, I'm not going to argue with him at the time because he was shaving me and he's got tats and stuff. Um, but we all have views of who Jesus is. Now, this week as I was preparing for this, I did decide to go to Dr. Google. And so I typed in, Jesus is. And it came with a variety of options. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is alive. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is nailed to the cross. Jesus is risen. Jesus is my superhero. Oh dear. Anyway, Jesus is crucified. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is my best friend. Jesus is coming soon. So there's a few opinions on there. Friends, I'll be very uh, honest with you. This morning, there's one thing that we need to consider. That Jesus is... God. That Jesus is God. This is what he's unpacking for us in these verses that we just heard read to us. That he is God. And over the last few weeks we've been hearing, you know, we've been seeing how Jesus has been revealing himself to a variety of people. Firstly, we heard the story of the Samaritan woman and someone who only knew aspects of who the Messiah is that has been revealed to her, this Jesus, the one who is the living water. And a few weeks ago, we heard about the official whose son was healed. Now, Jesus didn't see the son. Jesus just spoke, revealing his authority in his word to make something happen, to be healing this man. But the, 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 the fruit of that was the, the guy goes back, hears about it, and everyone responds to who this Jesus is. And so the scene in front of us is a place called Bethsaida. It's a pool. And uh, I was just talking to Mark earlier, and he said he's been there. And if you go there, you can actually find this archaeological dig. It actually still exists now. Jesus comes, and I think Jesus has been quite deliberate. It's not something that he's sort of walking past and he says, oh, what's in the pool? No, he has a mission. He has a purpose. We heard that a little bit later, where Jesus is concerned to do the Father's work. Here in this moment, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He's there for a reason because there's a festival going on. There's a feast going on. There's a few options But either way, he's arrived on a particular day to do this particular sign. 
on the Sabbath. He's focused on this man. And we see this man, and it's described as a man who had been in Villard for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time. And he asks the question, do you want to be healed? This man for 38 years cannot walk. For 38 years, he's disabled. And he's waiting. He's waiting to be carried into the pool. Now, if you have probably not the ESV journal version, but one of your own Bibles, you'll have a little bracket there, which has a bit of a footnote to say, hey, there was an addition. Maybe there was an angel that arrived. The angel of the Lord stirred up the water. Uh, Most commentators would say that was an addition that was added later on. And so what happens is people get so caught up on the sign, but they forget what the sign is pointing to. This Jesus. So this man is waiting. He's waiting to be healed. He's waiting to get better. And Jesus looks at him and asks, Do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed? Now, it's very clear this man doesn't know who's before him, because if he did, you know, he would say, Of course, Jesus, heal me. His comment is, Sir, I have no one to carry me when the water is stirred to go in there and to be healed or to get better. And what Jesus says to him is, Get up. Or another way to say is wake up. And the language is like, it's almost like wake up from your sleep. Wake up. Pick up your camping bed and walk. And in the moment, he is healed, he's restored, he's physically able to stand up and walk. Would have been an amazing sight to see. But see, the point is not actually about the sign itself, even though it is, wow, amazing. I don't know if you picked the little footnote. You know when you see something and it says like, you know, free. And then you see the little asterisks. And you go, ooh, conditions apply. Here in the text, if you see it, I don't know if you saw it, John, the author, says, now the day, that day was a Sabbath. This is John's little asterisk. Take note. Because this sets the scene for the rest of this chapter. This is the conditions apply kind of thing. The whole point of this sign was really to start unraveling for the audience that John is writing to, even to us today, but also Jesus now starting to reveal even more of who he is. Jesus is not only showing his lordship over sickness, like this paralyzed man, but Jesus, I think, is also showing his authority even on one of the most sacred days of the Jewish calendar, the Sabbath. This guy, he's healed. So what does he do? He carries his bed. He heads off. As he's going, some people rock up and say, hey, it's unlawful for you to carry the bed on the Sabbath. Now, in your text, you might say Jews, or another way to read it is this Jewish leaders, or at least, the very least, these are, I would say, the, the Sabbath police. Uh, These are people who see this man carrying and they say, hey, buddy, you're breaking the Sabbath law. This is not good. Now, you know, if you've grown up in Christian culture and Christian world, you probably heard, yes, Sabbath, you know, the seventh day, you know, this is the very holy day, all that kind of stuff. But see, in that time, it it was powerful. It had so much weight over it. It's the seventh day. The idea was it was actually something that God actually established. It's not man-made. God is the one who established the Sabbath. 
It's, it started from creation. In Genesis, you can read about it. But the whole point of it was God abstained. God, God said, hey, the seventh day is the day of rest. And he commanded the people to keep it. And you can see this in places like Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your manservant or your maidservant, or your cattle or the sojourners who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. This is the background that's going on. But over time, what happens? Some religious people come along. And just to make sure they get it really right, they started adding some extra things. Some commentators wouldn't even argue. There's over 30 things that were, they were expected not to do. And you see throughout the Gospels, Jesus is constantly confronting this, this um, reality. So the aim of the Sabbath was not like God finished his work and said, oh, I'm so tired, I need a bit of a day off. It was established for man to remind them that God is the provider, that God is the one who's done the work. But what happens over time is some religious people and others add things to it. And by the time Jesus came, there's over 30 or so things that were added. And that, was, that included carrying a bed. And so here at this moment, this man is confronted. And in verse 10, he says, Hey, the guy said, Hey, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up the bed. But he answered, The man who healed me, that, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They don't even ask him, Hey, why are you walking? Have, have you been healed? He doesn't even talk about um, any of those things. They don't actually ask those kind of questions. They straight away notice what he's doing is wrong, it's unlawful. You shouldn't be doing that. But it's interesting as well what the man's response is. The man is, in a sense, dobbing Jesus in. He dobs Jesus in. And you see that even more in verses 11 to 13. This man says, this guy, I didn't actually do it. Don't, don't blame me. The man who healed me told me to do it. It's his fault. This man did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and says in verse 13. And then later on, this guy once again is confronted by Jesus. Jesus actually turns around and says, hey, you're well. But then he says to him, sin no more. Sin no more. It's a pretty powerful statement by Jesus. Jesus is saying to this man, you're well, you're healed, you've been restored, but sin no more. You know, it's interesting, this man's response again is to go back and report what's happened. He doesn't pause to thank Jesus for healing him. Uh, in other passages, they talk about going and telling others, and we've just had examples of that, of the Samaritan woman and going and telling the whole village, the village responding. We've talked about the, the official whose son was healed and his whole family believes. This man, no action except going and dobbing Jesus in. See, it's interesting. The reason why I think Jesus is pulling this man up and saying, hey, don't sin, 
And then he says, something more worse may happen. I don't think Jesus is trying to explain to him and say, hey, if you do not sin, if you sin again, what's going to happen? You're going to be paralyzed again. What Jesus is really getting at is a much more deeper lesson. Jesus is saying, you've experienced the hand of God. You've experienced his grace. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. And we've seen this. Uh, the author, John, as he was engaging, uh, as, as he tells the story of Jesus engaging with Nicodemus, Jesus says this in John 3, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so they may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is Jesus' loving warning to this man. You've experienced healing. Don't sin. Don't go back to what you know. But it seems that this man doesn't really take much account. He brushes it off. And he goes and informs the religious leaders of the time. And of course, the confrontation is about to happen. They come and they decide to tell Jesus, you're not allowed to do this. And in verse 16, the author John says, hey, from then on, they were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus' response to them is, My Father is working until now, and I am working. See, for the Jewish leaders of the time, they're far more focused to make sure that people are ticking the boxes. They're making sure that everyone's doing things right and tight. And so their response is, anyone who goes against that is to persecute them, to call them up on it. And it's interesting, in that moment where they confront Jesus and, they, and Jesus responds and says, hey, my father's working until now, I'm working. And straight away the author John says, this is why Jesus was seek, they were seeking to kill Jesus even more because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Wait, he just said... My father's working until now, I'm working. How do they equate that to Jesus being God? See, in the context here, the idea of Sabbath was established by God. It was passed on as a commandment. But it was very clear in that time through the religious leaders that although Sabbath was created by God, it was created by God for man. So it's not like on the Sabbath, God all of a sudden says, day off for me. It's my RDO. I won't do any work now. Everyone knew that God continues his work because he is God. He is the creator. And he will dwell as he pleases. So he, when he does work, even on the Sabbath, he's not sinning because he's the one who created it. But even the rabbis knew at that time that the Father, or God, the creator, was still at work. His divine providence remained active on the Sabbath. Otherwise, if it wasn't involved, if God was not at work, 
all of life in the world that we know would cease to exist. So, God's divine activity was shown in very more particular ways, particularly in the teachings of the time. Men were born and men died on the Sabbath. And since it's only God who gives life, and God is the one who will judge, God is the one who is active in the Sabbath. So this is the background that's going on when Jesus makes that statement. He's saying his work is justified on the Sabbath because he is equal to God. Now you can feel the blood boiling of the religious leaders. So the, the Sabbath privilege was peculiar to God and no one was equal to God in claiming the right to work even in that time. And here is Jesus claiming a divine prerogative. He is literally making himself equal to God and he explicitly states that. And this is what he does over the next few verses. Jesus, both in his actions and his words, declare both his lordship and who he is, that he's equal to God. Friends, who is Jesus? Jesus is God. He is equal to God. Now, this is nothing new as we've unpacked the Gospel of John, is it not? Do you remember John 1.1? 1, 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was... God. And this moment, the Jewish leaders are so caught up in their religious practices. They're so bitter and angry. Their hearts are hardened. So Jesus wants to unpack for them why and the reason that he's equal to God. And so he does. Verses 18 onwards, that's what he's doing. He's unpacking that he is equal to God. And the reason why he's equal to God is he explains in verse 19, his heart and his desire and what he does, he does what the Father does. In that moment, in that statement that he's saying, he's saying, hey, it's not like the Father is in some sort of zone and then the the Son in some zone and then the Father does his thing and the Son does his thing and then they have a weekly meeting to talk about what they're up to and then off they go. What he's trying to explain to them is what he does is what the Father does. They are united. There's a oneness. They are one in nature. He's equal to God because of the love they have for one another. They're equal because their Father and Son, their love for one another. There's so much deep theology in there. But it's to describe this is why he's equal to God. Jesus is equal to God in verse 20. He talks about the signs that he's done and displays. He's saying to them, hey, the signs are there, and you marvel at the signs, but the signs are actually to show you that I am equal to God. And then he unpacks further of what is to come. Author and commentator Josh Moody puts it this way. Ultimately, he's saying to these guys, hey, guys, you've seen nothing yet. If you think this is amazing, what you see in the pool, you've seen nothing yet. Knowing that Jesus will do the wonderful, beautiful display of his sacrifice on the cross, only God alone can do that. And the verses of about verse 21 displaying that Jesus is equal to God, 
It's to display and describe to you that Jesus is showing that the power of the Father flows to him. Not a little bit completely. And that is going to be displayed even more when he rises from the dead. Verse 22, talking about Jesus is equal to God. Jesus is describing to these guys that he has all authority because the authority is not something that he's sort of borrowed. It's authority that has been given to him. And because he is equal to God, he can judge. He has the right to do that because it's been given by the Father. Jesus is explaining even further as he unpacks those verses that he's equal to God because his heart's desire is to remind them that when you honor the Son, you honor the Father because they are equal. Because if you don't honor the Son, you're not honoring the Father. In other words, what he's saying is like you guys, you religious leaders think that somehow keeping the Sabbath, those rules and regulations will keep you honoring God, the, God the Creator. You think that keeping the Sabbath is what honors God. But in this moment, you're not even honoring me. They're not honoring me. You're dishonoring the Father because we are equal. And the few verses following on again, he's unpacking he's equal to God. Because his very words, and we've been seeing that slowly as the Apostle John is writing, revealing that the very words of Jesus brings life. Not only what he does physically by healing brings life, but what he says has the same equality and power of God. The very power of the Father is invested in Jesus' words. Jesus explained again in verse 26 that he's, he's equal to God because in him is found life. Friends, have we not already heard this as we unpack the Gospel of John? In John chapter 1 verse 4 says, In him was life, and life was the light of men. The very being of Jesus brings life because he is the author of life. As we know it, he's the one because he's equal to God. Jesus is equal to God, and later, as he explains again, he makes a very powerful statement of being the Son of Man. In the Bible's sort of storyline, particularly those of the Jewish leaders, hearing this line, wait, did you say Son of Man? They're automatically thinking of passages like Daniel chapter 7. He's saying that even the Old Testament predicts his authority because he's equal to God. And then Jesus talks about because he's equal to God, he has the right to judge. Judge those who will respond to his voice. They will have resurrection and life. And those who deny his voice will face judgment. And in the passage you may read and go, oh, well, is he talking about works? No, he's not. He's just explained to them. Life can only be found in him. So what he's describing is, when you hear the voice of God in faith, you have life. And those who reject his voice will face judgment. Jesus is clearly, constantly communicating to these people that he is equal to God. Because on all those things that he's explained to them can only be reserved for God. In those very statements, he's saying, this is why I am equal to God. That he is God. That he is judge. And in the world that we live in today, that loves options... Jesus is making it very clear he is exclusive. 
he is exclusive. That is countercultural, but that is the truth because that's what he said. And the only reason for this, friends, as we've been seeing, is because of that wonderful relationship the father and son have. And here's the thing, though. Whether if you're someone who's skeptical or someone who is a follower, we all have our favorite Jesus, don't we? We all have that favorite Jesus that we love to run to. Maybe you're skeptical and you're not sure if you believe. And you think maybe like my friend the barber, he's a cool guy. Maybe you think he's just a religious leader. And maybe in our Western church particularly, we try to kind of put sort of Jesus in this little comfy, little comfortable, cuddly box because he's loving and gracious, which is all true. You know, we have our favorite Jesus on the cross, the saving Jesus, all wonderful, true pictures. But friends, here Jesus is making very clear, and this is something we always have to come back to, that he is equal to God and he is God. He's not a little bit kinder. He is. And that's what he wants to say to you and I today. And just in case they needed more evidence, he calls a witness stand. He calls the witnesses to come and declare. And the witness that matters to him is what the father says. He says in verse 30, he's there to do the father's will. That's why he is there. And in that contrast, what he's doing in that moment is that saying, hey, you religious leaders are far more interested in doing your own will. You're far more interested in keeping the status quo. But Jesus, his witness, the Father, is witnessing that Jesus doing the will of the Father, that's all he's concerned about. Then he says about the second witness, we've discovered him as we're unpacking the Gospel of John, have we not? John the Baptist. John in the very first chapter says, John bore witness about him and he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. This is a statement of equality to God. And just to make sure they get to understand, Jesus doesn't really care about what they think. He has his father as witness. And that's what matters to him. If you see that in verse 30, And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, this form you've never seen. And your word and his word is not abiding in you, for you do not believe the ones whom he has sent. Jesus himself is saying that the Father proclaims and the very deeds that he does, all these things. Even the man who was just healed in that pool, these were signed by God, the Father, to do, to point people back to the reality of who Jesus is. That he is God. But whether the, the words are proclaimed in that conversation or others, or whether if it's through the signs that Jesus is proclaiming, in verses 37 to 46 of chapter 5, Jesus unravels the heart of the people that he's speaking to. He says, The Father sent me. He says, the word of the, his word is not abiding in you. And then he says this clanger to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? I mean, these are people who are so consumed in the Old Testament and they know it really well. They are seen as the people of the law. And they thought that by keeping the regulations is how they will find salvation. What Jesus is doing in this moment is revealing the hardness of their heart. They're so thorough. They're studying the scriptures. When I say study the scriptures, it's not like they have a quiet time every morning. They are studying the scriptures. They're memorizing. It's not like they can Google a verse about Jesus or Google the covenants or the Ten Commandments. They're memorizing. They know the stuff. But in the midst of doing that, what they really have made scripture about is how can scripture be about them? How can scripture be about them making sure that they stay holy and they stay right and ultimately earn their own salvation. And that's what they think will bring eternal life. And in their study of scripture, they have missed the big picture and big idea. Scripture ultimately will point to Jesus. This is what the hardness of heart has done to them. They're not willing to see Jesus, and they've missed it. And that's displayed by their lack of love for Jesus, who is equal to God. They reject him and his word, and ultimately they'll be shown on the cross. And ultimately what they have far more concerned is their own witness. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, you're looking for your own witness, ultimately you guys love yourselves. You're far more interested in each other's praise. What we're seeing is pride and selfishness and self-righteousness through religious practices. This is the reality of religious hardness to God and his son. They're far more concerned about what they do. And the whole point of scripture is lost before them. And so Jesus says to me, this is why you guys are condemned. And he even doesn't even say God's going to condemn. He says Moses himself. And now that is like a slap in the face for the Jewish leaders to hear. You think that Moses will say because you're doing the Sabbath stuff, he will justify you. Well, I've got news for you. You're condemned. Because, see, if you believed him, if you actually read what he wrote, you would have seen me. You would have seen me. See, there's so much to unpack there. But here in this moment, what Jesus is really challenging the people is that you've missed it. You missed what Moses was writing about. I mean, we heard about this when we were doing the, uh, the Mother's Day service, right? This whole idea, that, uh, the idea of passing on. And so what these guys do is they're, they're focused on the law and the commandments, but they missed the whole idea of what puts them all together. Do you remember? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
and these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. That's at the heart of following the Sabbath. Why do you do the Sabbath? Because of your love for God. And here in this moment, they've turned it around into rules and regulations. What Jesus is saying, here is Moses, is writing. And there's only one that would come who would really love the Father fully, 100%. This is Jesus himself. The Jesus who was there when that word was given to Moses. But the Jesus that was there when the law was given to him. An author puts it this way. The five books of Moses throughout it are sprinkled with symbolic references to Jesus. Some of the most famous are the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22. The Passover lamb in Exodus 12. The bread from heaven from Exodus 16. The smitten rock in Exodus 17, 1-7 and Numbers 20, 1-12. The bronze snake, Numbers 21, 4-9. The clearest of this is from Deuteronomy 18 to 17 19, where the prophet, like Moses, is promised. Jesus asked them a question finally. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe in my words? So they missed it. And the author John already said this in John chapter 1. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. And this is what we're seeing in this moment here. They think in doing what they're doing, they'll earn salvation. And they've totally missed the Savior. And this question, do you believe his writings? How will you believe my words if you don't believe Moses' writings? Is still the same for you and I. Will you believe Jesus had his very word? Friends, Jesus is God. He is equal to God. He's both Savior and Judge. And friend, if you're a skeptical friend who's exploring the Christian faith, you might think that Christianity is about, you know, doing all these do's and don'ts. It's not. Christianity is ultimately about worship of someone. And out of worship of him, we say no to things. And rather than thinking that maybe if you can meet up to that mark, you can't. There is someone who has met that mark on your behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, because he's equal to God. And before you explore whether Christianity is true and you do all the research on it, great, do it. One thing I would challenge you to consider is actually look at the claims of Jesus first. Because that's where it begins and that's where it ends. Christian friends, we too are in the danger of losing sight of Jesus and who he is. We might not be people who will practice, you know, it's about the Sabbath and you've got to keep the Sabbath holy and all that stuff. I'm sure this might have not happened here. You know, if you're a really good Christian church, you only play hymns. If you're a real good Christian church, you don't have drums. Yeah, I know it's about grace, but you know, it's only about the King James Version or the ESV. We talk a lot about grace, we talk a lot about Jesus, and it's only through Jesus being equal to God. What are we adding to who he is? And there might be some of us going, yeah, get those people, should be. I grew up in one of those churches. If Jesus is equal to God, and if you have a relationship with him, he has authority of your life, which means he determines your lifestyle. 
So there's no like, I can say yes to some sin and no to some others. It's say no to sin. Because Jesus is equal to God. He has authority in your life. Friends, as we continue this series in John, you will see over the next few weeks this idea being unpacked even more deeper. One of the things that really confronts me about Jesus in this moment is he's explaining this to these religious leaders. What overwhelms me in that moment is Jesus being equal to God, Jesus being God, Jesus who has authority, Jesus, his very words, and even scripture, and all there's so much witness, even creation itself, was willing to go to the length that he did to save you and me. Whether if you're skeptical, or where you are so religious. The Apostle Paul would later write, as he was confronted by this Jesus, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 9, Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to being grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Friends, if you do not know Jesus, begin by discovering who he is. Discover his claims. Is it true? Is he really God? For those of us who do know Jesus, what are we adding to make ourselves think that we are right before a holy God? You know one way to test that out? Hang out with Christians who don't have it together like you. Do you look at anyone, whether at Canterbury Gardens or other church circles, you roll your eyes? Or are you reminded, like you and me have to be reminded daily, we have a saviour who is humble enough to come down to this world that he created to die on the cross for you and for me. And then he sent us out as his ambassadors, not as arrogant people, but people hopefully growing in humility because of who he is not because of what we've done. Let me pray. Father, we want to come before you and we want to thank you for sending us your son. Jesus, you are God and there is none other. You are the only true God. For those of us who don't know you, stir our hearts to explore more of those claims. For those of us who know you, please grant us the grace to never tire of that, to live lives not adding to your gospel, but to live under your grace, but also living under your loving authority. For your glory we pray. Amen.